Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Dave Hall. I am your host. We are here to talk about the longest self-imposed period of unemployment most of you will have in your lifetime. Could be 10 years, could be 20. Heck, it might even be 30. It is what we call retirement. If you are looking to get safely through retirement, go to my website, retirementriskadvisor.com. Here you're going to get access to all of our tools, all of our planning resources, our education classes, all those things that you're going to need to help you eliminate the various risks facing your retirement. Do have some good and exciting news beyond uh, our guest here today. I'm just finishing up my new book, Getting Safely Through Retirement. Hopefully we'll be releasing that over the next month or so. So keep an eye out for that, where we will go through and and share stories and talk about the risks that you're going to face and what you need to do to solve those. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit uh, more about mental health. I know we've had other shows where we've covered this, but it's because it's such a big topic, especially in those retirement years that end up being impacted all of a sudden your life's changed from an environment where maybe you were needed every day, you had a place to go every day to a situation where you may start feeling a little bit alone, that life's going to be a little different than what you had anticipated. To help me with the show and to really help you get the information you need, I brought in with me Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. He is a board-certified psychiatrist, a contributing columnist for Men's Health Magazine, and an affiliate faculty member at the University of Texas Dell Medical School. He also just published his first book, Back in 2022, The Self-Healing Mind, an essential five-step practice for overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Dave, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Very excited to talk about what you've done and the things that you've learned that are going to be able to help our audience. Anything else that I've not shared about your background that you'd like to share to let our audience know more about who you are? I think you got all the the big points. I'm just telling you, I'm someone who is passionate about mental health. I think that it's something that we're all thinking about. We're not talking about it enough. So I am so thrilled that you're making time and space to have conversations like these. How about if we start talking a little bit about your book? So that just got published, I believe, back in June of 2022. What led you to going to the effort? And and having gone through it myself, I know it's effort. It's not something that just happens. Say, hey, there's a space for what I know to help people get into a better mental situation, whether in or out of retirement. I'll tell you, as a practicing psychiatrist, there are only so many patients that I can see in a day. And we also know that access to mental health services is something that a lot of people uh, struggle with. You know, it's a barrier for people getting the type of information that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals share in their practice. And so a book is a good way to reach as many people as possible with the information that I'm sharing with my patients every day. And so I'll tell you, the timing ended up being just right. I found myself at the beginning of pandemic, like so many other people working from home and just having time to finally sit down and put pen to paper. How did that look like for you from a doctor's standpoint? I know the pandemic ended up creating more mental health issues than we've had previously, or at least exposed a lot of issues that maybe had not been addressed. But yet here you're in a position where you're locked in your home. You may not be able to go out and do the things you need. Come problematic for you to be able to help the patients you wanted to during that period of time? Well, I'll tell you the dynamic definitely changed, right? I mean, more people were staying at home. And so the mental health challenges I think that people were having 
during the pandemic were a little bit different than what we had seen before. I mean, definitely saw more people feeling more isolated, more people were feeling disconnected from their family and friends. And I'll tell you, as a practicing psychiatrist, I saw my volume just increase tremendously during the pandemic. More people were requesting appointments, more people were feeling depressed and anxious, but it also posed as an opportunity to have conversations with people that I never would have been able to meet with before. Again, if we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, if we can hold on to those lessons that we learned during the pandemic, I think we'll all be in a better off place. Where do you think we are from a long-term perspective with this? Do you think it's getting better? Is it still getting worse uh, because of uh, the impacts that hit our lives for a couple of year period of time there? Well, I'll tell you, I think that we've made a significant amount of progress when it comes to dismantling the stigma surrounding mental health. I'll say that during the pandemic, noticed again, more conversations like the one you and I are having now started to happen. We started to see documentaries being produced about mental health. We started to see more uh, public figures, athletes, actors, actresses coming out and sharing their own personal story. And so again, I think that the more we can talk about it, I think, you know, that indicates that we're moving in the right direction. This is something that has hit my family pretty hard over the years. My wife has suffered from depression for decades now, something that her mom had suffered with uh, prior to her, and now some of my children are struggling with this. And you're right. It's something that oftentimes just seems to be hit, even my wife knowing that I was aware of it and knowing that I was open to trying to help take care of some of these issues pretty closet uh, person at times with the care and what she was doing. There'd be times that she'd stop taking medication because she just got tired of feeling like she had to be on all the time. And, and then I end up with a kidney transplant about three years ago. I can't miss a day of medication. I have to take that anti-rejection medication for the rest of my life. And so kind of opened her eyes to saying, wait a second, maybe it's okay. My husband's in a position he's got to take the medicine forever because of a physical disability. I'm in a position that it's okay to do what I need to do to make sure I'm taken care of. And, and do you see some of that happening with other people? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of shame that people carry around mental health. And it's shame that we don't need to have it, right? I mean, if you think of something, you know, like anxiety, so 40 million Americans in a given year would actually meet criteria, the clinical threshold for having an anxiety disorder. But the truth is, Dave, we're all anxious. I'm anxious. You're anxious. Your wife's anxious. All of our friends are anxious because we need anxiety in order to survive. It's a normal part of the human condition. Now, Sometimes anxiety can kind of boil over and get to the point where it's interfering with our life. And that's where medication and other treatment interventions like self-care can make the biggest difference. But, you know, my biggest message to people who are carrying that shame about getting treatment is that it's actually uh, the most noble thing that you can do for yourself and for your family and for your friends is to actually get treatment if you're struggling. I couldn't agree with you more. As I've seen my wife go through this and when she's been able to get the help she needed and, and realize that we're there to support her, been a much different experience. More than 50% of CPAs will run out of money in retirement, and this number is projected to grow because of risks like inflation, increased longevity, and rising healthcare costs. Retirement Risks Advisors has the perfect solution to help CPAs make their money last as long as they do. Learn more by signing up for our flagship webinar, Getting Safely Through Retirement. In this webinar, we share the top 10 financial risks CPAs will face in retirement and what can be done to reduce or eliminate each risk. 
To get started, visit retirementriskadvisors.com slash safe. Today's show is about solutions, not just about problems. Obviously, we realize there's a problem out there and we've talked about it, but I know there's a number of things that you recommend from a self-care standpoint that can help people from a starting point. Now, obviously, there's a level we'll talk about of getting professional help, but any things you'd like to cover from a self-care standpoint that we could get our retirees, especially looking into that could better their situation of where they're in right now? I'll first say, I mean, when it comes to retirees, Oftentimes with different generations, I mean, there might be even more resistance to tapping into mental health services or even acknowledging that uh, we have a problem, you know, if, if we do. And so, you know, when it comes to self-care, it's not necessarily only for people who have been diagnosed with depression or diagnosed with anxiety. It's important to realize anyone who's listening to this, anyone who's alive, anyone who has a brain can benefit from self-care strategies. And some of the strategies I cover in the book are what I call the essential five pillars of self-care, sleep, spirituality, nutrition, breath work, and movement. And I outline a specific playbook in the book for how each of us can utilize those self-care strategies to improve our mental health. And they're so intertwined. That's something that I found out as a kidney recipient. My life changed after that. You, you don't quite expect it. You realize, hey, it's going to be a little different uh, if you go into, I was never on dialysis, so I never had to go through that process, which many of my family members had. But I thought, okay, I'm going to get my kidney. Everything's going to be wonderful. I haven't been able to sleep real well since then. Now, I've seen doctors and I've been able to get help to do that. But as a result, I'm up way more hours. I, I'm eating more than I, I should because I'm awake more than I used to be. Uh, you know, I'm not exercising because uh, you know, now I'm more tired uh, every day. It seems like these things can really pull themselves on top of each other, too, if you don't solve one of them. That is absolutely correct. I mean, and I'm glad you brought up sleep to begin with, because I'll tell you, back when I was in residency, when I was in training covering inpatient units, patients would come in morbidly depressed. And we would just spend three days sometimes just addressing sleep. You know, how can we get this person with three or four nights of good sleep? And the thing is, when you start someone on an antidepressant, an SSRI medication, for example, they can take weeks before they really kick in, right? But if you just focus on getting three or four or five good nights of sleep, you find people actually experiencing a reduction in their symptoms of depression. They feel better. They feel more vibrant, more energetic, right? And so uh, there are simple strategies that we can actually implement. One of them that I learned when I was doing research for this book is that it's better to sleep in a colder room, right? So to actually turn the thermostat down 65 to 70 degrees is what science has found is the ideal room temperature to develop a bedtime routine uh, so that we can wind down, whether it's drinking a hot cup of tea, taking a warm bath. The worst thing that we can do if we're struggling with sleep is to sit on the couch, you know, watch our Netflix, watch TV. Because the thing is, blue and green wavelengths of light that are emitted from our screens, our tablets, our televisions, our smartphones actually hinder the release of melatonin in the brain, which is important for helping us fall asleep. Definitely something I've experienced. Again, for my whole life, I was a guy that could fall asleep within 10 seconds. And my wife hated that because she's the type that would have to lay there for 10, 15 minutes before she could fall asleep. And yeah. I was out. I was gone. Uh, not, you know, I slept until morning came and everything was wonderful. But what you're saying is just so important. And I found even pillows are, are a critical part 
know, there's one pillow that I have to have to really get a good night's sleep and feel like uh, mm-hmm. where, where I should be and that it's working. And there's so many things that can affect sleep. Remember, sleep and mental health, as you alluded to earlier, they have a bi-directional relationship. So we're not getting quality sleep. It can affect our mental health. If we're struggling with mental illnesses like anxiety, for example, or depression, that can in turn affect our sleep. But other things as well. I mean, you want to make sure your bed is comfortable, your pillow is comfortable. Pain, physical pain can definitely affect sleep. Men, as they get older, sometimes will have uh, prostate issues or getting up several times throughout the course of the night to go and urinate. That can affect quality of sleep as well. So there's so many factors that we have to look at. Uh, Sleep apnea is another one of those things. But again, if it's determined that it's not really a physical issue that's affecting your sleep, that's when you can start to look at some of the mental health problems that we, we can address. And as I look at what you're talking about here, it seems like there's a big part of we've got a responsibility, but we also got to realize, and I think this is one of the challenges my wife experienced at times, that, hey, I can do this on my own. I can sleep well, I can eat well, I can get exercise, I can do all these things that you talk about uh, from a self-help side, but sometimes that's not enough. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, I think that that's where seeking professional help makes total sense, Okay. Because we do have medications that can help with those very issues, right? We have therapies that can help with those very issues. Now, I wouldn't say that the medications or the therapies or, you know, the conventional treatments that we think of when we consider modern medicine should serve as a replacement for self-care. The two should work together, right? I mean, that's how you get the best outcomes. Yeah, you have yourself working, the experts that, that know more than most of us know uh, working to really get ourselves where we need to be. I'd like to talk a little bit, Dr. Brown, about something you'd brought up earlier, and I've seen it in my own family a little bit more recently with my son, but the timing of all this. I think many people all of a sudden find and say, okay, I'm going to get past the stigma. I'm going to go see someone. I'm going to talk to them, but I want that magic pill that by tomorrow I'm going to be better and everything's going to be wonderful. You mentioned even with some of the medication, it can take weeks possibly to to figure it out and it may not even work from what I've experienced and may have to be switched over. Can you talk a little bit about that timing and the patience people need to have to allow the process to work? Right. That's why self-care is so important, right? Because it's, it's sustainable. So if we start working on things like nutrition and breath work, you know, moving our body, you know, start focusing on sleep, developing a spiritual practice, whether it's meditation or for religious uh, prayer, you know, those, those are sustainable treatments. Now, medications, as you know, I mentioned earlier, many of the medications for anxiety and depression do take time to kick in, right? And so it's important that whatever the mental illness may be, whether it's anxiety or depression or something else, you know, that we attack it from several different angles, Right. And so if we're attacking it from the the self-care strategies, medication strategies, psychotherapies, then, you know, in some cases we can speed up that uh, recovery process. And then if we get to a point where, you know, we're doing really well for a period of time, in many cases, you can even start to taper off of the medication because you build some of these long term sustainable skills. Yeah, completely agree with that. One of the other things I, I throw out there, and again, I'm not the doctor, uh, Dr. Brown is, but from what I've seen with my, my wife too, is there's times you have to adjust. 
you know, there's been multiple times throughout her life because she's dealt with it for so long that a medication that worked really well for a period of time and that now isn't working so well. And she's got to do an adjustment there. Any thoughts you would share there, Dr. Brown? You know, that's, that's totally true. I mean, you see that all the time in clinical practice, right? I mean, I think the main message here for anyone listening is that there are a lot of different options, right? And sometimes you have to make a little bit of tweaks here and there, but there's no reason. There's no reason why someone who's suffering should feel like they have to suffer in silence and that treatment isn't available for them. There are a lot of options. Yeah. Uh, and it's sad that that's happening out there because again, if you've got a kidney problem, you got cancer, you got any of these other big issues that most of us look at as saying that's a problem, you go get help you immediately. Again, men I realized I had kidney problem. I restructured my diet. I researched like crazy. Even though my family had dealt with it for decades, I wanted to know what it was going to be like for me. I wanted to know what my options were. I wanted to know what I should be eating. I wanted to know, uh, you know what I should be preparing for if there were alternatives. And, and again, in our own side, this is where books like, that Dr. Brown have written are, are great resources. Say, hey, I can do some education. I can do self-care. But then I may be in a position I, I need some further help. And that's what the professional's for. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with reaching out and trying to get that help. That's absolutely right. I mean, and, and again, if we think about the fact that in the United States alone, Dave, there were 140 suicides on average every single day, right? People of all ages, all backgrounds, men, women, right? And the thing that we have to, to keep in mind, a lot of people who die by suicide, they're never checking in with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So this is a public health issue that I think we can start to really make positive change and help reduce some of those statistics by having conversations like the one we're having right now. As we go through your five steps, the five self-care steps that we look at, I mean, hey, I'm pretty good from sleep. I I know, hey, you're supposed to get sleep. And I think most people do. I know we're supposed to get exercise and again, can figure out what that is for you, but you you, you can pretty much solve that. You can solve the nutrition side. We, most of us know what meditating prayer is. Talk a little bit about breathing. This is one you talk about there and something that many of us don't really think about. It's like we do it 24 hours a day, but it's not something that we ever get a minute's thought about. Most people don't realize we take between 20 and 30,000 breaths every single day, right? And most of us, again, if we're, unless we're having trouble breathing, we don't stop uh, to even think about one of those breaths, right? But it's one of the most underutilized tools in medicine. I mean, we take a deep breath in and out. We are actually increasing the amount of GABA in the brain. That's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which just means that it slows everything down. I actually have medications that I can prescribe as a psychiatrist that work on the GABA system. But we can do that by manipulating the way that we breathe. If we were to hook an EEG up to the brain, put some electrodes on the brain and watch the brain waves, you actually increase the amount of alpha waves in the brain by manipulating the way you breathe. If you're slowing your breath, taking deep breaths in and out, these are physiologic markers of rest and relaxation. Now, It's also important to appreciate that if someone is anxious and you're just like, you know, just take some deep breaths, calm down, relax, that's probably not going to work, right? And so in the book, I outline specific strategies, specific methods for manipulating your breath that you can practice at home. One is the 478 technique. One is an Ujjayi Pranayama technique that's commonly taught in yoga. These are evidence-based strategies that can help Uh, reduce anxiety and instill a sense of calm and peace. Cool. Dr. Brown, you brought up another uh, item there that I'd like to talk a little bit about, and and that's the 
just take a breath, just get over it. I'm guilty of that. I, when I go back in the early years of my life, when my wife and I first got married, I didn't understand it. And I don't think society understood it as well. And so as someone who's very optimistic, very positive, easy to get going every day, it made no sense that, that this couldn't happen. So is there anything in your book that talks about those family members that may have a family member struggling and some things that we can do to be more supportive? I think if you're a family member, you know, who, of, of someone who's struggling, I think the, the first thing to do is to really read the book and educate yourself about what people who struggle with depression, anxiety experience, right? And to navigate the book, to navigate those discussions that you're having with your family members and friends with curiosity before judgment. Because the thing is, you know, if, if we live long enough, you know, we all will experience you know, a little bit of wear and tear here <laughs> that, you know, life will do, right? And for some people, it may be a physical problem. Other people, it may be an issue related to mental health, but all of us have something going on. I think if we can approach it with a, a curiosity before judgment, I think that's the best approach. What great advice. One other question I have for you, we're going to have to start wrapping up here uh, in a minute, but from a spirituality side, I'm a very spiritual person. I pray every day. I've done that through most of my life. Is there a recommended time frame when we talk about either spirituality, meditation? Is it th just that we're doing it or, hey, really, if you can take 10, 15, 20 minutes, that's going to get the, the better benefit for what you're doing there? I think it's important to, to begin a spiritual practice, right? That might mean five minutes one day, that might mean half an hour. Again, most people, Dave, when they think about spirituality, the first thing they think about is religion, right? And, you know, religion is definitely a form of spirituality that is definitely beneficial for many, many people. But spirituality is about connection as well, whether it's connecting with your inner self through meditation or even connecting with your external environment through volunteering your time, right? And so I think the important thing to do is if you're not someone who has a spiritual practice, start where you can, see where it takes you, give yourself permission to acknowledge how you feel. If it's five minutes of meditation, you might find that it's something that you really find attractive and you find almost addicting and you want to do more of it. Uh, so start where you can. I have a son that that happened to. He's a very self-aware person, spends a, a lot of time praying and meditating at 30 minutes, whatever it might be, more than that a day, working very well for him. And many of his friends are like, how do you get here? I'm not here. And he starts asking him, they're like spending two minutes. He's like, okay, I got two minutes. I pray and I'm done. And it's like, you're not going to learn enough about yourself and that relationship in a two minute period of time. It's going to take more than that to get you there. And again, probably a different amount of time for every person. The other thing you might realize the first time you try to meditate, and I'll tell you, this is this was totally me. I hated it, right? I couldn't calm my mind down. So, I mean, again, that might cause some people to kind of walk away from it before it has a chance to, to really kick in and take effect. You know, two minutes, they're done, right? And so I'd say, again, if two minutes is all you can do to start off with, two minutes is fine. But maybe the next day, try five minutes. The next day, 10 minutes, right? Give yourself permission to see how meditation and spiritual practice can make changes in your life. Folks, you've got to take care of yourself first. When we look at it, you're no good to anyone else. I noticed that as a father with eight kids and two of them disabled, that I'm no good to them if I'm not taking care of myself first. So please do that. Dr. Brown, this has been an absolute pleasure having you. How can our listeners not only learn more about what you're doing, but also get access to your book? 
So gregoryscottbrown.com is my website. You can find out all about my work there. And my book is available wherever you buy your books. Amazon, you know, I always recommend people support their local bookstore. If you can, if you go into the store, they don't have it, tell them to order it. But yeah, I mean, you can find out about my work uh, at my website. I'm also on social media at Gregory S. Brown, MD. Perfect. Uh, The book, The Self-Healing Mind, An Essential Five-Step Practice for Overcoming Anxiety and Depression and Revitalizing Your Life. So look for the book. uh, Reach out, Gregory Scott Brown. If you'd like to learn more about getting safely through retirement, go to our website, retirementriskadvisor.com. My name's Dave Hall. I've been your host. Look forward to seeing each of you again next week. And that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We come out with a new episode every Friday morning, and you don't want to miss it. The Retirement Risk Show is a production of the Retirement Risk Advisors. Our show was produced by C.R. Talene and Autumn Koenig. If you're a CPA looking for more retirement education, visit retirementriskadvisors.com.